In connection with the subject in hand, we cannot evade the significance of this passage. Those with whom we are now concerned are saints, the called of Jesus Christ. They are those who are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. A true Christian cannot be defined in lower terms than one who has been called and justified. And therefore the question is, may one who has been called and justified fall away and come short of eternal salvation? Paul's answer is inescapable. The called and the justified will be glorified. Likewise, if we proceed in the other direction, we reach the same result. The called are those who have been predestinated to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Verse 29. Is it possible to conceive of God's predestinating purpose as being defeated? Not even an Arminian will say that. For he believes that God predestinates to eternal salvation those whom he foresees will persevere to the end and be saved. We need to appreciate what is at stake in this controversy. If saints may fall away and be finally lost, then the called and the justified may fall away and be lost. But that is what the inspired apostle says will not happen and cannot happen. Whom God calls and justifies, he also glorifies. And that glorification is nothing less than conformity to the image of God's own Son. It is that of which Paul speaks when he says that God will transfigure the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his, Christ's, glory. Philippians 3.21 And in which Romans 8.23 he calls the adoption, the redemption of our body. The denial of the perseverance of the saints devastates the explicit import of the apostles' teaching. We could rest the argument for the doctrine of perseverance on this one passage, but the scripture provides us with added confirmation. It is well to remember the words of him who spoke as never man spoke, who came down from heaven to do the will of him that sent him, that of all whom the Father had given him, he should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. John 6.39 Surely no one will deny that a saint in New Testament terms is one who believes on Christ, a saint is a believer. And what does Jesus say respecting a believer? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes on him may have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. John 6.40 Are we to entertain even the remotest suspicion that this will of the Father will be defeated? Jesus here assures us that it will not, for he defines for us the sequel. He says not only that it is the will of the Father that everyone who believes on him may have eternal life, but also that he will raise him up in the last day. Lest we should be in doubt as to the character of this resurrection in the last day, he informs us in the preceding verse that the resurrection in the last day is in contrast with the losing of anything given him by the Father. In other words, the resurrection in the last day of which Jesus is here speaking is the resurrection that is conjoined with the securing from loss of that which the Father had given to him. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everything which he hath given to me I should not lose anything of it, but I will raise it up in the last day. Verse 39 And does not Jesus give us the most pointed assurance that a believer cannot perish when he says, Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Verse 37 to come unto him is simply to believe on him, and the security that Jesus envisions and guarantees stops not one whit short of the resurrection to life at the last day. But this is not all. 
we do well to examine these discourses of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John still further. Jesus also says, Everyone whom the Father giveth to me shall come to me. 637 Wherever there is the giving on the part of the Father, there is the inevitable consequent or concomitant of coming to Christ, that is to say, of believing on him. But it is also true that wherever there is coming to Christ, there is also the giving on the part of the Father. For Jesus also says that no one can come unto him except the Father draw him, 644, and except it were given him of the Father, 665. In this discourse we shall have to regard the giving of men to Christ and the drawing of men to Christ on the part of the Father as two aspects of the same event, two ways in which the same event may be viewed. The drawing of the Father views the event as action exerted upon men, the giving to Christ as donation on the part of the Father to the Son. It is impossible to think of them as separable. The sum of the matter, then, is that no one can come to Christ except by donation to Christ on the Father's part. And we have already found in Jesus' expression words that everyone thus donated comes to Christ and believes on him. His giving by the Father and coming to Christ on the part of men are inseparable. Either cannot exist without the other, and wherever the one is, is the other. If we turn now to John 10, we shall find, on this background, conclusive confirmation of the truth that believers cannot perish. Jesus, again, is talking of those who have been given him by the Father. We cannot disassociate the giving spoken of here from the giving spoken of in John 6, even though Jesus introduces a new designation by which to characterize the persons concerned, namely, that they are his sheep. What is it that Jesus says? My Father who hath given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. When we inquire as to the force of this, that no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, we find it in the preceding words of Jesus. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Chapter 10, verse 28. What Jesus is dealing with is obviously the infallible security of those who have been given unto him by the Father. They shall never perish. And that same security is guaranteed by the fact that no one will snatch them out of his hand. It is to confirm that truth that he says, My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. The guarantee of infallible preservation is that the persons given to the Son are in the Son's hand and though given to the Son, they are still mysteriously in the Father's hand. From the hand of neither can anyone snatch them. This is the heritage of those who are given by the Father. But we must also remember that all who are given to Christ come to Christ, that is, believe on Him, and all who believe on Him are those who have been given to Him. Therefore, it is not simply of those who have been given to Him by the Father that Jesus is speaking in John 10, verses 28 and 29, he is speaking also of believers. We have found from the passages in John 6 that those given are believers, and believers are those given. Hence, of all believers, that is, of all who come to Christ in terms of John 6, verses 37, 44, 45, and 65, it can be said on the authority of him who is the truth, the true God and eternal life, that believers in Jesus' name will never perish. 
they will be raised up in the last day to the resurrection of the blessed. In Paul's language, they will attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Philippians 3.11 Have we not in this truth new reason to marvel at the grace of God and the immutability of his love? It is the indissolubility of the bond of the covenant of God's grace that undergirds this precious article of faith. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my loving kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall my covenant of peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. Isaiah 54 verse 10 Chapter 9 Union with Christ In these studies we are dealing with the application of redemption. Intelligent readers may have wondered why there has not been up to this point some treatment of union with Christ. Obviously, it is an important aspect of the application of redemption, and, if we do not take account of it, not only would our presentation of the application of redemption be defective, but our view of the Christian life would be gravely distorted. Nothing is more central or basic than union and communion with Christ. There is, however, a good reason why the subject of union with Christ should not be coordinated with the other phases of the application of redemption with which we have dealt. That reason is that union with Christ is, in itself, a very broad and embracive subject. It is not simply a step in the application of redemption. When viewed according to the teaching of Scripture in its broader aspects, it underlies every step of the application of redemption. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. Indeed, the whole process of salvation has its origin in one phase of union with Christ, and salvation has in view the realization of other phases of union with Christ. This can be readily seen if we remember that brief expression which is so common in the New Testament, namely, in Christ. It is that which is meant by in Christ that we have in mind when we speak of union with Christ. It is quite apparent that the scripture applies the expression in Christ to much more than the application of redemption. A certain aspect of union with Christ, it is true, belongs strictly to the application of redemption. With that we shall deal later. But we would not deal properly with the subject of union with Christ unless we set forth, first of all, its broader meaning. We would not be able to appreciate that which falls within the application of redemption if we did not relate it to that which is broader. The breadth of union with Christ can be seen if we survey the teaching of Scripture respecting it. When we do this, we see how far back it goes and how far forward. The fountain of salvation itself in the eternal election of the Father is in Christ. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. The Father elected from eternity, but he elected in Christ. We are not able to understand all that is involved, but the fact is plain enough that there was no election of the Father in eternity apart from Christ. And that means that those who will be saved were not even contemplated by the Father in the ultimate counsel of his predestinating love apart from union with Christ. They were chosen in Christ. As far back as we can go in tracing salvation to its fountain, we find union with Christ. It is not something tacked on. It is there from the outset. 
It is also because the people of God were in Christ when he gave his life a ransom and redeemed by his blood that salvation has been secured for them. They are represented as united to Christ in his death, resurrection, and exaltation to heaven. Romans 6 verses 2 through 11, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 6, and Colossians 3 verses 3 and 4. In the Beloved, Paul says, we have redemption through his blood, Ephesians 1 7. Hence we may never think of the work of redemption wrought once for all by Christ, apart from the union with his people which was effected in the election of the Father before the foundation of the world. In other words, we may never think of redemption in abstraction from the mysterious arrangements of God's love and wisdom and grace by which Christ was united to his people and his people were united to him when he died upon the accursed tree and rose again from the dead. This is but another way of saying that the church is the body of Christ and Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5.25 It is in Christ that the people of God are created anew. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Ephesians 2.10 Here Paul is insisting upon the great truth that by grace, not works, we are saved. Salvation has its inception in God's grace, and this is certified by the fact that we are saved by a new creation in Christ. It should not surprise us that the beginning of salvation in actual possession should be in union with Christ because we have found already that it is in Christ that salvation had its origin in the eternal election of the Father and that it is in Christ salvation was once for all secured by Jesus' ransom blood. We could not think of such union with Christ as suspended when the people of God become the actual partakers of redemption. They are created anew in Christ. But not only does the new life have its inception in Christ, it is also continued by virtue of the same relationship to him. It is in Christ that Christian life and behavior are conducted. Romans 6, 4, 1 Corinthians 1, 4, and 5. See also 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 17. The new life believers live, they live in the fellowship of Jesus' resurrection. In everything they are made rich in him in all utterance and in all knowledge. It is in Christ that believers die. They have fallen asleep in Christ or through Christ, and they are dead in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 14 and 16. Could anything illustrate the indissolubility of union with Christ more plainly than the fact that this union is not severed even in death? Death, of course, is real. Spirit and body are rent asunder. But the separated elements of the person are still united to Christ. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Psalm 116, verse 15. Finally, it is in Christ that the people of God will be resurrected and glorified. It is in Christ they will be made alive, when the last trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. 1 Corinthians 15:22. It is with Christ they will be glorified. Romans 8:17. We thus see that union with Christ has its source in the election of God the Father before the foundation of the world, and it has its fruition in the glorification of the sons of God. The perspective of God's people is not narrow, it is broad, and it is long. It is not confined to space and time, it has the expanse of eternity. Its orbit has two points of focus, one the electing love of God the Father in the counsels of eternity, the other glorification with Christ in the manifestation of his glory. The former has no beginning, the latter has no end. 
glorification with Christ at his coming will be but the beginning of a consummation that will encompass the ages of the ages. So shall we ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 It is a perspective with a past and with a future, but neither the past nor the future is bounded by what we know as our temporal history. And because temporal history falls within such a perspective, it has meaning and hope. What is it that binds past and present and future together in the life of faith and in the hope of glory? Why does the believer entertain the thought of God's determinate counsel with such joy? Why can he have patience in the perplexities and adversities of the present? Why can he have confident assurance with reference to the future and rejoice in hope of the glory of God? It is because he cannot think of past, present, or future apart from union with Christ. It is union with Christ now in the virtue of his death and the power of his resurrection that certifies to him the reality of his election in Christ before the foundation of the world. He is blessed by the Father with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ, just as he was chosen in Christ from eternal ages. See Ephesians 1 verses 3 and 4. And he has the seal of an eternal inheritance because it is in Christ that he is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise as the earnest of his inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession. Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14. Apart from union with Christ, we cannot view past, present, or future with anything but dismay and Christless dread. By union with Christ, the whole complexion of time and eternity is changed and the people of God may rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Union with Christ is a very inclusive subject. It embraces the wide span of salvation from its ultimate source in the eternal election of God to its final fruition in the glorification of the elect. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption, both in its accomplishment and in its application. Union with Christ binds all together and ensures that to all for whom Christ has purchased redemption, he effectively applies and communicates the same. But union with Christ is an important part of the application of redemption. We do not become actual partakers of Christ until redemption is effectually applied. Paul, in writing to the believers at Ephesus, reminded them that they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, but he also reminded them that there was a time when they were without Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2.12, and that they were by nature children of wrath even as others, Ephesians 2.3. Although they had been chosen in Christ before times eternal, yet they were Christless until they were called effectually into the fellowship of God's Son, 1 Corinthians 1.9. Hence it is by the effectual call of God the Father that men are made partakers of Christ and enter into the enjoyment of the blessings of redemption. Only then do they know the fellowship of Christ. What is the nature of this union with Christ which is effected by the call of God? There are several things to be said in answer to this question. Number one, it is spiritual. Few words in the New Testament have been subjected to more distortion than the word spiritual. Frequently, it is used to denote what is little more than vague sentimentality. Spiritual in the New Testament refers to that which is of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual man is the person who is indwelt and controlled by the Holy Spirit, 
and the spiritual state of mind is a state of mind that is produced and maintained by the Holy Spirit. Hence, when we say that union with Christ is spiritual, we mean, first of all, that the bond of this union is the Holy Spirit himself. For in one spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether bond or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12:13. See also 1 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 19, Romans 8, verses 9 to 11, and 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, and chapter 4, verse 13. We need to appreciate far more than we have been wont to the close interdependence of Christ and the Holy Spirit in the operations of saving grace. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, and the Spirit is the Spirit of the Lord, and Christ is the Lord of the Spirit. See Romans 8, verse 9, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, and 1 Peter 1, verse 11. Christ dwells in us if his Spirit dwells in us, and he dwells in us by the Spirit. Union with Christ is a great mystery. That the Holy Spirit is the bond of this union does not diminish the mystery, but this truth does throw a flood of light upon the mystery, and it also guards the mystery against sensuous notions on the one hand and pure sentimentality on the other. This brings us to note in the second place that union with Christ is spiritual because it is a spiritual relationship that is in view. It is not the kind of union that we have in the Godhead, three persons in one God. It is not the kind of union we have in the person of Christ, two natures in one person. It is not the kind of union we have in man, body and soul constituting a human being. It is not simply the union of feeling, affection, understanding, mind, heart, will and purpose. Here we have union which we are unable to define specifically but it is union of an intensely spiritual character consonant with the nature and work of the Holy Spirit so that in a very real way surpassing our power of analysis Christ dwells in his people and his people dwell in him. Number two, it is mystical. When we use the word mystical in this connection it is well to take our starting point from the word mystery as it is used in the scripture. We are liable to use the word to designate something that is completely unintelligible and of which we cannot have an understanding. That is not the sense of scripture. The apostle in Romans 16 verse 25 and 26 sets the point for the understanding of this term. There Paul speaks of the revelation of the mystery hid from times eternal but manifested now through the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God and made known unto the obedience of faith among all nations. There are four things to be observed about this mystery. Number one, it was kept secret from times eternal. It was something hid in the mind and counsel of God. Number two, it did not continue to be kept hid. It was manifested and made known in accordance with the will and commandment of God. Number three, this revelation on God's part was mediated through and deposited in the scripture. It was revealed to all nations and is no longer a secret. And number four, this revelation is directed to the end that all nations may come to the obedience of faith. A mystery is, therefore, something which eye hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man, but which God has revealed unto us by his Spirit, and which by revelation and faith comes to be known and appropriated by men. That union with Christ is such a mystery is apparent, 
In speaking of union with Christ, and after comparing it with the union that exists between man and wife, Paul says, This mystery is great, but I speak of Christ and of the church. Ephesians 5.32 And again Paul speaks of the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and describes it as the mystery which has been hid from the ages and from the generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. Colossians 1, verses 26 and 27. Union with Christ is mystical because it is a mystery. That fact that it is a mystery underlines the preciousness of it and the intimacy of the relation it entails. The wide range of similitude used in Scripture to illustrate union with Christ is very striking. On the highest level of being, it is compared to the union which exists between the persons of the Trinity in the Godhead. This is staggering, but it is the case. John 14:23 and 17 verses 21 through 23. On the lowest level, it is compared to the relation that exists between the stones of a building and the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2 verses 19 through 22 and 1 Peter 2 verses 4 and 5. In between these two limits, there is a variety of similitude drawn from different levels of being and relationship. It is compared to the union that existed between Adam and all posterity. Romans 5 verses 12 through 19, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 19 through 49. It is compared to the union that exists between man and wife. Ephesians 5 verses 22 through 33. See also John chapter 3 verse 29. It is compared to the union that exists between the head and the other members in the human body. Ephesians 4 verses 15 and 16. It is compared to the relation of the vine to the branches. John 15. Hence we have analogy drawn from the various strata of being, ascending from the inanimate realm to the very life of the persons of the Godhead. This should teach us a great principle. It is obvious that we must not reduce the nature and the mode of union with Christ to the measure of the kind of union that exists between the chief cornerstone and the other stones in the building, nor to the measure of the kind of union that exists between the vine and the branches, nor to that of the head and the other members of the body, nor even to that of husband and wife. The mode, nature, and kind of union differ in the different cases. There is similitude, but not identity. But just as we may not reduce the union between Christ and his people to the level of the union that exists on these other strata of being, so we must not raise it to the level of the union that exists within the Godhead. Similitude here again does not mean identity. Union with Christ does not mean that we are incorporated into the life of the Godhead. That is one of the distortions to which this great truth has been subjected. But the process of thought by which such a view has been adopted neglects one of the simplest principles which must always guide our thinking, namely, that analogy does not mean identity. When we make a comparison, we do not make an equation. Of all the kinds of union or unity that exist for creatures, the union of believers with Christ is the highest. The greatest mystery of being is the mystery of the Trinity, three persons in one God. The great mystery of godliness is the mystery of the Incarnation, that the Son of God became man and was manifest in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. But the greatest mystery of creaturely relations is the union of the people of God with Christ.
and the mystery of it is attested by nothing more than this that it is compared to the union that exists between the Father and the Son in the unity of the Godhead. It has been customary to use the word mystical to express the mysticism which enters into the exercise of faith. It is necessary for us to recognize that there is an intelligent mysticism in the life of faith. Believers are called into the fellowship of Christ, and fellowship means communion. The life of faith is one of living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. Faith is directed not only to a Redeemer who has come and completed once for all a work of redemption. It is directed to him not merely as the one who died, but as the one who rose again, and who lives as our great high priest and advocate. And because faith is directed to him as living Savior and Lord, fellowship reaches the zenith of its exercise. There is no communion among men that is comparable to fellowship with Christ. He communes with his people, and his people commune with him in conscious reciprocal love. Whom having not seen, ye love, wrote the Apostle Peter, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1.18 The life of faith is the life of love, and the life of love is the life of fellowship, or mystic communion with him who ever lives to make intercession for his people, and who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. It is fellowship with him who has an inexhaustible reservoir of sympathy with his people's temptations, afflictions, and infirmities, because he was tempted in all points like as they are, yet without sin. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold metallic assent. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion, because communion with God is the crown and apex of true religion. Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. 1 John 1.3 Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. All to which the people of God have been predestined in the eternal election of God, all that has been secured and procured for them in the once-for-all accomplishment of redemption, all of which they become the actual partakers in the application of redemption, and all that by God's grace they will become in the state of consummated bliss, is embraced within the compass of union and communion with Christ. As we found earlier in these studies, it is adoption into the family of God as sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty that accords to the people of God the apex of blessing and privilege. But we cannot think of adoption apart from union with Christ. It is significant that the election in Christ before the foundation of the world is election unto the adoption of sons, When Paul says that the Father chose a people in Christ before the foundation of the world, that they should be holy, he also adds that in love he predestined them unto adoption through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 Apparently, election to holiness is parallel to predestination to adoption. These are two ways of expressing the same great truth. They disclose to us the different facets which belong to the Father's election. Hence, union with Christ and adoption are complementary aspects of this amazing grace. Union with Christ reaches its zenith in adoption, and adoption has its orbit in union with Christ. The people of God are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Romans 8.17 All things are theirs, whether life or death, or things present or things to come. All are theirs because they are Christ's, and Christ is God's. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 22 and 23 
They are united to him in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and they are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. It is out of the measureless fullness of grace and truth, of wisdom and power, of goodness and love, of righteousness and faithfulness which resides in him, that God's people draw for all their needs in this life and for the hope of the life to come. There is no truth, therefore, more suited to impart confidence and strength, comfort and joy in the Lord, than this one of union with Christ. It also promotes sanctification, not only because all sanctifying grace is derived from Christ as the crucified and exalted Redeemer, but also because the recognition of fellowship with Christ and of the high privilege it entails incites to gratitude, obedience, and devotion. Union means also communion, and communion constrains a humble, reverent, loving walk with him who died and rose again, that he might be our Lord. But whoso keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. By this we know that we are in him. He that says he abides in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. 1 John 2, verses 5 and 6. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. John 15, verse 4. There is another phase of the subject of union with Christ that must not be omitted. If it were overlooked, there would be a serious defect in our understanding and appreciation of the implications of this union. These are the implications which arise from the relations of Christ to the other persons of the Trinity and from our relations to the other persons of the Trinity by reason of our union with Christ. Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. John 10.30 We should expect, therefore, that union with Christ would bring us into similar relation with the Father. This is exactly what our Lord himself tells us. If a man love me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. John 14.23 The thought is overwhelming, but it is unmistakable. The Father, as well as Christ, comes and makes his abode with the believer. Perhaps even more striking is another word of Jesus. Not for these only do I ask, but also for those who believe on me through their word, in order that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, in order that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And I have given to them the glory which thou hast given me, in order that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, in order that they may be perfected in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. John 17, verses 20 through 23. And not only is it the Father who is united with believers and dwells in them, Jesus tells us likewise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him. But ye know him, because he dwells with you, and shall be in you. John 14, verses 16 and 17. It is union, therefore, with the Father, and with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit, that union with Christ draws along with it. It is this testimony of Jesus himself that the Apostle reiterate when John says, And truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 3. And Paul, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Romans 8, 9. 
it is too confined and therefore a distorted conception of union with Christ that we entertain if it is Christ alone that we think of as sustaining such intimacy of relation to the people of God. Here indeed is mysticism on the highest plane. It is not the mysticism of vague, unintelligible feeling or rapture. It is the mysticism of communion with the one true and living God. And it is communion with the one true and living God because and only because it is communion with the three distinct persons of the Godhead in the strict particularity which belongs to each person in that grand economy of saving relationship to us. Believers know the Father and have fellowship with him in his own distinguishing character and operation as the Father. They know the Son and have fellowship with him in his own distinguishing character and operation as the Son, the Savior, the Redeemer, the Exalted Lord. They know and have fellowship with the Holy Spirit in his own distinguishing character and operation as the Spirit, the Advocate, the Comforter, the Sanctifier. It is not the blurred confusion of rapturous ecstasy. It is faith solidly founded on the revelation deposited for us in the Scripture, and it is faith actively receiving that revelation by the inward witness of the Holy Spirit. But it is also faith that stirs the deepest springs of emotion in the raptures of holy love and joy. Believers enter into the Holy of Holies of communion with the triune God, and they do so because they have been raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.6 Their life is hid with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3 They draw nigh in full assurance of faith, having their hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and their bodies washed with pure water, because Christ is not entered into holy places made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for them. Hebrews 9.24 Chapter 10 Glorification Glorification is the final phase of the application of redemption. It is that which brings to completion the process which begins in effectual calling. Indeed, it is the completion of the whole process of redemption. For glorification means the attainment of the goal to which the elect of God were predestined in the eternal purpose of the Father, and it involves the consummation of the redemption secured and procured by the vicarious work of Christ. But when does glorification take place? It is here that we need to appreciate what glorification really is and how it is to be realized. Glorification does not refer to the blessedness upon which the spirits of believers enter at death. It is true that then the saints, as respects their disembodied spirits, are made perfect in holiness and passed immediately into the presence of the Lord Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. See 2 Corinthians 5.8 Presence with Christ in his state of glory cannot consist with any of the defilements of sin. The spirits of departed saints are the spirits of just men made perfect. Hebrews 12.23 the Shorter Catechism sums up the truth when it says, The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Yet however glorious is the transformation of the people of God at death, and however much they may be disposed to say with the Apostle that to depart and to be with Christ is far better, Philippians 1.23 this is not their glorification. It is not the goal of the believer's hope and expectation. The redemption which Christ has secured for his people is redemption not only from sin, 
but also from all its consequences. Death is the wages of sin, and the death of believers does not deliver them from death. The last enemy, death, has not yet been destroyed. It has not yet been swallowed up in victory. Hence, glorification has in view the destruction of death itself. It is to dishonor Christ and to undermine the nature of the Christian hope to substitute the blessedness upon which believers enter at death for the glory that is to be revealed when this corruptible will put on incorruption and this mortal will put on immortality. 1 Corinthians 15.54 Preoccupation with the event of death indicates a deflection of faith, of love, and of hope. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown within ourselves, the Apostle reminds us, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Romans 8.23 That is the glorification. It is the complete and final redemption of the whole person when, in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer, when the very body of their humiliation will be conformed to the body of Christ's glory. Philippians 3.21 God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, and therefore nothing short of resurrection to the full enjoyment of God can constitute the glory to which the living God will lead his redeemed. Christ is the first begotten from the dead, the first fruits of them that have fallen asleep. He is the firstborn among many brethren. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they 
to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words then are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.